Hey, this is Brandon J. Clack, and you're tuned into Game Changer. What's going on, everybody? Brandon J. Clack here on all your social media platforms, back with another edition of Game Changer. I've got the Game Changer of them all with me today, Dr. Matthew Stevenson. And uh, I have come to really believe that he's not just making a national impact. I think it's crossed those borders by now. And I think his fingerprint is being felt all around the world. Dr. Matthew Stevenson, how are you, sir? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really good to be talking to you on the Game Changers podcast. It's great to be alive. I am, uh, you know, we used to do this um, <laughs> when we first met, and I tried to give it all kind of different names, and back then you were really aggressive with me. You would tell me, no, that's stupid. We're not doing that. <laughs> I will talk to you, but we're not going to go that far and name it something that was dumb, but uh, I'm glad to get this uh, opportunity with you, and I'm going to jump right in. I think right now, America, especially in the Christian context, really just wants to know what are some of the things that makes Dr. Stevenson tick? What what are some of your daily disciplines that has uh, brought you to such uh, a level that you're at right now? What are some things you do daily? I am a very, very regimented individual, good, bad, indifferent, otherwise. So whatever I do, I'm going to do a lot of it until I no longer want to do it. Um, and so part of what I do daily is I wake up <laughs> and... Um, I make sure that I'm energized appropriately by loving on my wife and children, which is a very important part of my day because I feel like those are the people who love me without much anticipation, expectation. So they love me purely. So that's a part of my premise for the day. Um, I work and I work and I come home and I do it again. I remember you telling me a, a few days ago that you're not really sure if you know how to vacation. No, I know how to vacation. I don't know how to rest. Okay. Why can't you rest on vacation? My head is going all the time. And what I've learned is that physical exhaustion is different from mental exhaustion. So I can be physically rested theoretically, but I don't know how to change my mind. I don't know how to turn it off. Do most people know the difference from when they're resting and when they're actually recovering? Most people don't know very much. And so uh, they probably do not know um, that there is a, a strong difference between when they're resting and when they're relaxing. And I think those terms are just kind of used synonymously. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get some rest, but they, if you, if the thought rigor is at the same strength that is going to impact studies show that the very last thing you think before you go to bed is going to determine the quality of your rest or not. Mm -hmm. And also the first thing you think about when you wake up, which is why the Bible science between praying morning, noon and night, when, when the song of Solomon talks about praying upon your bed, it's really, 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 beneficial even from a chemical standpoint because the, the the first thing you think about when you set up your or wake up is going to set the mood for your day so one sets the mood for how you sleep the other sets the moves for how you work throughout the day and i think just that mental regulation it's a huge conversation right now for everybody in every field of work is what's going on in your head life uh let's just get to the nitty-gritty uh how did you adapt this strong i don't care i was raised by uh military people who everything was danger or not, everything was black and or white, and we did very little survival. So it was either you be tough or not. And uh, that was my organic home base. And then also I feel like uh, 
in a ministry space, especially, I feel like the context of my story was that you were born into a storyline where you had very little time variance on what you could and could not care about. Mm. It was survival of the fittest, the yeah. rumble in the jungle. I think that's interesting because, you know, somebody from what I've learned and observed from you over the last few years is that you have found this balance of being productive and mm. being unbothered. Yeah. And I, I think sometimes it comes across as rude. Sure. How do you feel when people misunderstand your boundaries for rudeness? Um, I am misunderstood most by the people furthest from me. So mm. I don't exhaust myself in trying to get upset at that distance. Um, the same is true in the space of people who receive my teaching and message. The people that don't like them are not my assignment. So I kind of cap that off at what that is. I also think fundamentally, though, for me as a person, as a preacher, as a man, the first lesson, the first lesson I learned from God was was that I'll never forget when I so I was filled with the Holy Spirit in 1997. I heard the call of God to preach in 1999. When the call of God came to me, my only I was ignorant about what the the prophetic and all that stuff was. I didn't know anything about going to nations. I know I heard the Lord told me what to do. And I said yes, naively, because I didn't know enough to say no. But I remembered very vividly, it is my life testimony. The very next thing I heard from the voice of the Lord was, um, I asked God, I'll do this. If you tell my family, I'll do this if you explain this to them. And I'll never forget the Lord told me no. And that set up a forever trajectory that I would have to obey the Lord and put people's understanding of it at bay. And then when the season came, their understanding would come around. But that set up me to not be a democratic, popularly hmm. driven by people's understanding of my assignment type of thing. It was the first lesson I learned. So as you're coming into the understanding of your assignment, and I feel like that's a big word, that's a big phrase that people throw around loosely. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you comprehend that in the space that you're in right now mm -hmm. versus when you first said yes? Uh, great question. So in my life book, I have a calling. I have one calling. It's obedience. But I have a myriad of assignments, and those assignments change with the season they change with my willingness and every the promotion from the last assignment is a new assignment. I'm a huge believer that the way heaven promotes is by increasing responsibility. If you're faithful over a ruler, that's a word of responsibility. Or if you're a ruler over a few, mm -hmm. I'll make you rule over many, whatever the principle is. Mm -hmm. It means you get increased responsibility as you are faithful to assignment. So I don't think that a person has one assignment in life. I think the season determines the necessity of a man or a woman and that assignment needs to be discerned in order to prosper in life. In this space, um, I think more recently, I've been trying to be clear about what I am not assigned to do to refine what I should be delegating my energies and my devotion to. So when I first met you, yeah, you had a lot of responsibility. Do. As of today, it's probably times 10. Is. Does that pressure make you regret saying yes? No. How do you avoid regret? Most people, when responsibility comes on them, they regret not having their free time anymore. Well, I don't, um, I don't regret it or resent it because I feel like what I've learned 
probably in this space is how to cast all my cares on the Lord. So it is on my life, but it's his power that has to help me do it. So, you know, when you come into church in the context of any responsibility, you learn to cast your cares upon the Lord at salvation. What I now believe is that you've got to do it daily. So Monday's up to him. Tuesday's up to him. His people are up to him. Figuring this stuff out is up to him. And so I've just become probably, hey, I've become more reliant in my life than I've ever been under this responsibility. Does does the gift of, uh, I don't think you just have the gift of prophecy. I think you're a prophet. I am a prophet does, of God. Does that come into Of the play? highest order, resurrection from the dead. Because you know the future? Does that no. make your yes easier? No, it does not. It actually makes it harder. Mm. <laughs> because, you know, prophets, um, prophetic people, but prophets especially, we're this close from insanity because of the two realities we have to currently constantly live into. So number one, we're live streaming all day, sensitivity to all kinds of things in the invisible world, but also living in the tension points of now and tomorrow. It's always a constant space there. So um, I would say the pressure of anything is making sure I am hearing from the Lord as accurately for myself as I do other people in cities and stuff. So there is no pause in the prophetic. Like right now, you're sitting in Memphis, certainly, and God could give you something for somebody watching this in Detroit. We serve a timeless God who's talking all the time. Yes. So how do you how do you turn that on and off, or do you? I don't know that my objective is to turn it on or off. It's to manage it well and to learn what to do with it. The whole objective is sensitivity and learning what to do with what God is saying and what not to do with what He's not saying. Do people ever try to, with their emotions, make you prophesy things that they just want to hear? All the time. But do, it doesn't really work. With do me. they hide? Like, give us a story of, I don't know if you've ever been in a service and somebody's trying to overtly get your attention or dancing really hard or speaking in tongues, extra spiritual and hopeful Sometimes word. that is the case. Other times I've seen it where um, in situations of prophetic counsel, when people want or they come to the table saying, I want prophetic direction. What they really want is prophetic confirmation. Mm -hmm. So they want agreement for something they've already decided. And if they want the word of the Lord on an issue, it may or may not be what they've decided. Most people are looking for God to agree with what they already want. They don't want the word of the Lord. And so there is a difference too, uh, between coming to a prophetic person saying, I want to hear what God is saying on the issue. If you already have a preset, um, decision or just judgment on what you want. The Bible says in the book of Ezekiel, prophesy to them according to the idols of their own heart, which means that the volume variant is really different. If you resolve that it's not the word of the Lord you want, then sometimes a prophetic person, if they're unseasoned, especially can pick up on your own desire. And because Mm -hmm. it's invisible or it's coming from an invisible space, people think it's from God when it's just invisible and everything supernatural is not from the Lord. So Mm -hmm. I can hack into your soul's content and give you a prophetic word, but it may not be the heart of the mind of God. Is this where witchcraft comes into play? 1,000%. Witchcraft, it, it, in its simplest forms, in the prophetic realm, is alternate voices. So the witch, mm-hmm. essentially, if saved, mm-hmm. could be used as prophet. Potentially. The gift is not the information, it's the ability to receive it. I believe all prophets are born. You cannot prophesy hard enough or desire hard enough to become a prophet. Either you're it or you're not. And you have a certain hardware you come to the world with. That's not the war. The war is who and what you're going to serve with that hardware. That's where false prophets come from. A false prophet is more powerful 
um, like a person who is legitimately born to be a prophet and decides to not use it the right way than somebody aspiring to be and is not. The real prophetic spirit on a person who decides to use it unto another purpose or cause could do more damage than somebody who just really wants it bad. Now, that's interesting. You mentioned a war. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm born a prophet mm-hmm. and the war begins at the womb, mm-hmm. somebody still has to train me, hopefully, help mm-hmm. me come into information of my emotions yep. and, and my knowings. How important is it for prophets to be educated? Number one, factually speaking, the only reason you and I have schools is because of prophets. The very first school on the planet was crafted by a prophet. We don't see the phrase school in the Bible, except it was attached to a prophet first. Number two, the prophetic is so old. Luke eleven forty nine through 51 says the very first prophet was Abel. Mm-hmm. Jesus said he was coming to avenge the blood of the prophets from Abel till now. And if I assume Jesus knows everybody he appointed to the office of the prophet. That means that the, pro- the prophetic predates everything but the earth itself. It means that it was here literally after sin. Mm-hmm. So the prophetic is as old as sin, period. So what that means is this. Adam falls. Um, there is this issue. God's immediate next action. And this is where witchcraft came from. Mm-hmm. After sin, what happens? And sin came because of snake, the universal sign of the occult and witchcraft. What they do, it was an alternate direction from what God said. God's solution to that alternate voice in the garden let me impregnate Eve with a prophet. Abel is born. A prophet is now on earth because it's the only thing that can combat the distortion that came from what the serpent did. No wonder he was killed. He was mm. not killed because of a better offering. He was killed because he was a prophet. Wow. So that's a, that's a Genesis issue. We all the way in 2019. So. So, the, so the murder of the prophet essentially is one of Satan's main objectives. Oh, historically. And if you read through the book of Revelations, irrespective of what your eschatological view is, all of it has to do with avenging the blood of the prophets. I will avenge you holy Babylon. When he, he dealt with Babylon, I'm going to avenge the blood of the prophets. And uh, in the book of Luke, it also says, then said the wisdom of God, I will send you apostles and prophets and some of them you will slay and many of them you will persecute. So that is a, a scriptural con- continual from Genesis to Revelation that uh, those are two ministries. And it's because they are the scripture authoring mantles. Mm. The Bible did not come to us from pastors and teachers. It came to us from apostles and prophets. And so those two offices understand and experience God differently from other offices. And those are sides of God's personality that hell never once fully exhibited on the earth. Do you think that this might be the starting point of a lot of the attacks and controversy that follow you? Just by definition, because oh, you're a prophet. Think, I think it's matter of fact. I don't. I don't. Other people be speculate about it. I'm fully aware of it. I mean, I've inherited a, a several century persecution that it, it 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 is easy to take personal, but easy to also understand that my predecessors went through it. I think that this type of information. Do you have any books on the prophetic? I do. The prophetic responsibility will be out October the first. Oh, it's coming out. Yeah. Oh, excuse us. It's on pre-order on Amazon Bless. I love it. Okay, let's change gears. How do you feel about spiritual fathers? <laughs> what is your take on it? You know, I think cut, there's a re- cut. No, I'm kidding. I think there's a real necessity for <sighs> it. I think the capacity that you have for it is dynamic. But what is your take on it? <laughs> this is not one of my favorite topics. Um, I know. 
I absolutely believe it. And I think you have to ignore the New Testament to not see it there. So those relationships are there. They are. And which to me, the parallel is if you're going to have the New Testament reality, you got to have them born from New Testament relationships. And this is one of the core of it. I think the father son thing is the whole of what creation is hinged upon. Every seed reproduces after its kind. So it's encoded in the universe to be that way. Unfortunately, huh? we've seen a dramatic, uh, I want to use the word decline of the quality of these relationships. And I believe there's a lot behind it. One of the primary things behind it is strong merchandising. I think mm. that uh, from the father or the son, both interesting. I think the son, because of the father's, what the sons do is to learn behavior. I think this generation is a product of those that went before it. And um, you have to realize that, you know, we're dealing with systemic dysfunction in that revelation and in that conversation because there's a lot of age variants that got a hold to it. There's a lot of um, uh, ethnic overtures that got a hold to it. There's a lot of charismatic abuse. And then you've got the blatant conversation between control and free will. Um, so there's a whole myriad of, of issues around this subject matter. All that to say, I absolutely believe in it. I just believe we see more of it done wrong than right. What's the dance between control and free will? The dance between control and free will is that I, as a wisdom source, can offer as much wisdom, as much insight as possible, as much instruction, as many parameters. But I cannot withdraw your choice. Yeah. You have to choose the wisdom I provide. If I subtract your choice, I've controlled you. So you provide wisdom. Certainly. A son decides to do something else. Certainly. Does that stop the flow of wisdom? Not necessarily. Not time one. Sometimes it's a sign and of immaturity of not having an ear to hear. Sometimes it's a re- most times it's a reflection of where the son said son is with God. Uh, said son? Yeah. Meaning. Because I believe now uh-huh. I, I'm a, I, I, um, Paul said this in, in the book of first Timothy to Timothy, my true son in the faith. <laughs> I believe there's a lot of people who want the des- the designation and even have the intent that won't be tested enough or long enough to be proven true. Is the proof in the cut world changers two years ago. Uh-huh. I think you preached a classic uh-huh. about Paul's cutting of Timothy, Certainly. which was his identification of sonship. Certainly. I think it is in that and the protect, the protection of the posture of the relationship. You know, that is a relationship when it's real. I think it should be protected at all costs by both. How can the sons protect the fathers perspective? They're not protecting them physically. They're protecting the angle of the relationship. The definition of the relationship, the function, the revelation of that relationship is protected by my posture. Elijah tried to make Elisha shift his perspective. Stay here. You're unnecessary. You're tired. You're weary. But Elisha had an affixed set gaze on what that man meant to that life. And he protected it. Would you categorize that as the go play with your brother's syndrome? Now, America doesn't know what go play with your brothers mean. Apostle and I had a conversation uh, in Canada one time and myself and Pastor A.D. and Pastor LeBriant were there. And I I was expressing to him that I felt like in the uh, interim level of our relationship that we talked a lot. And I said, I don't hear from you as much. And the other guys like, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's the same here. But I just had the courage to ask. 
And then you turned to me and you said, I'm changing the world. Go play with your brothers. And Pastor LeBron and Pastor AD said, ooh. And they backed away and, you know, kind of left me on my own. <laughs> and But in the moment I was I was annoyed. But when I thought about it, I, it, I think it made more sense create deeper relationships. That is the whole of what I do. First of all, I have strengths and I have specialties. If you look at it, in the, and I'm very much a play with your brothers type of guy. What that means is once you're stable, functioning, alive, and growing, call me when you need me. I'll check in when I have something to say. Otherwise, go play with your brothers. If you think about it in the context of a house, brotherhood is a massive part of sonship. Yes, sir. And you cannot, as much as you want to alienate it, you absolutely cannot. Part of what that means is that if the heart of my leader, father, is turning to a new assignment, then a part of what I do as a son is I aid that assignment and I do not stand in the way of that next assignment. When when I need him, her, that, then I make it known. I make him there. But other than that, we've got to babysit until he gets home from work. Go play with your brothers. That's how I explain that thing. What will happen is if I get wind of a new emergency, a new assignment from the Lord, I'm throwing all my attention there. My last assignment may not like that as much because it doesn't feel the same way. Wisdom is involve myself in the new assignment or occupy anything that's ancillary with my brothers. Did you know when you first started introducing me to Pastor LeBron and Pastor AD, did you know we were I mean, going to be that close? you very specific on this game-changing podcast. These are game-changing moments. Okay, now what did you ask me on this game-changing? Did, did you expect, did you think that we were all going to be that close? As close as we are today? Ooh, uh, two of you, yes. <laughs> me and AD? Oh, no. Me and LeBron? Yeah. Really? I didn't think AD would like you. <laughs> And that's so funny because we hit it off almost immediately. Yeah. Why didn't you think you would like me? Ooh, um, you're just from two radically different worlds. Sure. Two radically different storylines. And I didn't know that AD would have opened up, frankly, to somebody whose story was very, it was the antithesis of what he had lived. Mm-hmm. He's a trust guy. But you felt like me and LeBron, we were going to hit it off. You're church kids. Hilarious. I think one of the most genius things in my estimation, to me, the secret sauce of all nations is the back office, real authentic relationships. I don't know that we could ever really publicize how real those relationships are. Sure. But I would agree. I think it it really is the glue and I think it is the bond. I also think it is the resilience, the Mm -hmm. impetus, the bounce back. All of that comes from those environment and spaces that people don't get the opportunity to see. And yet thousands around the world are, benefiting from it. So speaking about all nations, what type of responsibility and weight do you feel from her today? Globally today. A a whole lot, but then a whole little, I'm I'm in a real space of God, this is you. Mm -hmm. And however big it is, the way I don't, the way I'm not overwhelmed is that every day my goal is to obey whatever you say, whatever you show, I'll lean into that. If I do take a step back and look at the historic impact, all mm-hmm. of the prophets say it, everybody's like the the historic nature of this, that's where the pressure comes from is, and it's not, it's, I want to be specific. It's not a performance pressure. It's a pressure to walk in right stewardship mm. of the opportunity we've been given. And, and the crisis of the church is the opportunity of all nations. 
um, if the church would do it much better, what we're doing wouldn't be so phenomenal or bizarre or different in any way. But it is, in fact, the crisis or the, the common whatever of yeah. the, the local church that is the the stage of what we do and why we do it. In the next 20 years, what do you think the condition of Christianity is going to look like? I am gravely concerned. Okay. Um, if I sticking true to my offices, what I imagine is that people will continue to walk away from religion. The hope, though, is I think they're looking for God harder than they've ever done. Hmm. I think people are looking for God harder than what they were in Azusa. I don't think people knew what they were looking for at Azusa. I think people are looking more for God now than anything. And that is the hope of the church, um, not people's confidence in the church. I think they're looking for God. And so should the church reinvent herself to once again be about him? Our theos must be right. Our theology. Um, I think we have a shot at it. In my opinion, at the core of our theology is grace. Absolutely. And is the separation of the crisis that we see now, is it because of a lack of language about grace? If you do not understand the grace of God, you cannot comprehend the word of God. Mm-hmm. The, the The mismanagement of the, the doctrine, the gospel, the message of God's grace is the whole of the New Testament. From Matthew to Revelation, it is congealed by the manifest grace of God in Christ Jesus. So if you don't scratch into it, if you don't understand it, if you don't adequately teach it, because there are some people who use it um, to do a lot of crazy things, heretically speaking. Mm-hmm. But if you don't throw yourself into the grace of God, you can't understand the New Testament, period. Nothing about Why are people so afraid of the grace of God? They don't want to give people permission to see it. But here is the kicker. Okay. People are sinning without permission. Nah. And there you have it, Doc. So, uh, you know, they think that if you teach people about what the Bible says, that you are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast then people will stop working to earn God's love or the church's affection. Do you know what I think is hilarious? What? When people hear your grace presentation Uh and assume that that means leniency or blind eye to dysfunction or sin, when I actually believe you have a great balance of identifying both. Absolutely, because I think what grace does is it it gives you permission to be honest about what is. It Mm -hmm. does not excuse what is. And it does not overlook what is. It gives you the permission to be free from the condemnation of what is because without the right diagnosis, you don't have the right cure. We've been misdiagnosing the church for generations, calling something that is what it is not. We do not. The issue of sin was settled. Sin is a real issue today. But where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. What that yeah. means is that the grace of God is heavier than the sin of man. So if we teach people to access the grace of God, they will stop sinning. So the church transforms yeah. when the leader can accurately depict grace to the hearer. Well, there's dimensions to it. You need to not only depict grace, you need to demonstrate it. Mm. Jesus said, this is how, you know, the Bible says about Jesus, he came to the world full of grace and truth, period. Which means that grace is not grace apart from truth and truth is not truth apart from grace. They have to exist together. Go and sin no more. It's grace and truth, okay? The problem that I have with most people about their Christology Mm -hmm. is that they believe what he said. I only do what I see my father do. But then don't think that the father is not somewhere in heaven serving. Mm. If Jesus said, I can only do what I see my father do. And he chose to wash the feet of the 12. 
If his line is true and he is God, the father is somewhere washing something in heaven. Everything that Jesus did on earth is a replica of something he had already seen in God or else he's not Christ. So show us the father, show us the father. Have I been with you so long? Jesus said that you keep saying, show us the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. So everything that means that God was never out to kill Gentiles. Yes, sir. If Jesus's approach on earth was to reveal the father to us, he had to have been the, and, and this is where I get in trouble for being a spirit-filled theologian. Mm-hmm. Ephesians 1 says, Jesus and the church is the purpose of God. So if Jesus was the point of God for the word of God and the church is the manifest wisdom of God to the creature, then we have to come to grips with the state of the world being what it is because the state of the church is what she is. I believe the church collectively is a point in the purpose of God according to Ephesians 1, filling all in all, being the manifest expression of Christ. So because of that, I think there are two core fundaments that we've got to correct brutally, apologetically even, and that's Mm. our theology and our Christology. What we know and believe about God and what we know and believe about Jesus has got to take a radical paradigm shift. Why aren't leaders investing in the um, intentional demonstration of the grace of God? What happened to the core of the leader that may have read that but now won't show that? So grace is um, is like a magnet. You throw it out there and everything made of metal comes out. Mm -hmm. And most people don't want the stigma about what grace attracts. Wow. Um, The same thing happened to Jesus. If that's the son of God, Mm -hmm. why is he? They accuse Jesus of being an alcoholic. They Mm -hmm. say, why is he a wine bibber, a friend of sinners and whores and prostitutes? If Jesus is God. If he only does what he sees the father does, if he's full of grace and truth, and I mean, grace and truth exists in environments where there is a resistance to holiness and righteousness. You put grace there, that resistance weakens and it gravitates towards the grace of God, which is why the Bible says, take heed lest you fall. Because the key to it is you have to give as much grace as you realize you need. So you become a gracious person then mm-hmm. dispensing. But I also want to say designing grace spaces where people, I got the greatest compliment of my entire ministry this year. I was in a conversation with JJ Harrison and it was a very light one, a very casual one. And if I'm honest that day, I was in a weird mind space about ministry. I'm like, I just want to go be a businessman and prophesy <laughs> at the end of the year. Um, and J.J. Harrison said, you know, people ask me from all around the world, what is the all nations thing? Is it the lights? Is it the production? And J.J. said, no, but I answered them. It is the fact that people come to all nations and don't feel like they have to be ashamed about anything. Wow. They lose their shame. And I just inhaled that. I'm like, whoa, I think that's true. Whatever that looks like, it's not pretty. Yeah. But people come in our spaces, conferences, environments, couches, and realize they don't have anything to be ashamed of. That what has been has been, what happened happened, and what is what is. And now we got an accurate diagnosis, which is the premise of all real deliverance. Uh, leadership. Yep. It's, uh, I think it's one of your greatest hidden gifts to God be personally. Because I think Lord. people enjoy your platform stuff. Amen. And what you see and all of that. Sure. But behind the closed doors and how you lead and what you yeah. build. Mm-hmm. When did leadership become such a strong foundation for you? Leadership is my absolute favorite favorite subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would agree with you. It probably is the dominant. My leadership logic is the spine of what we built out is the way I see leadership. 
teams, the way I see execution, the way I see pace, mm-hmm. um, all of that. So yeah, leadership is my thing. And I also think it's the world's greatest need. I know you've probably got 50. Give me three, three traits of a bad leader. Ooh. You see these three things in your opinion mm-hmm. and you know, it's time to run. That's a bad leader. Uh, do what I say, not what I do. Mm. Why? Uh, because I think we lead from our life. Yeah. You know, it's who I am that gives me the believability to lead, mm-hmm. you know? So that's it. Three is um, leading with self at front, selfish leadership. Every great historic leader was selfless and laid their lives down for a cause beyond their lifetime. I say I'm the pastor of an, of the unborn. Hmm. So I love the people that are around me now, but my greater destiny is I pastor the unborn. Unpack that. I am most effective for people that don't exist yet. Do you still have to impact the wound that they'll come through? Absolutely. In order to do so. But my my labor, my hustle, and my bustle is for the reality and the world, the civilization that my great-grandchildren will live in. Wow. I'm working for them. I've already left this culture. <laughs> I'm from the future. Is that strange, being so future-forward than coming back and dealing with people that are so in so much present pain. Yeah, but I don't think it's anything uncommon for Moses or sure. Paul or, I mean, I think they all had similar frustrations and challenges. Moses goes up to a mountain, gets the Decalogue, which is a glimpse of all, every society in the world is built upon that conversation God had with Moses. Mm-hmm. We call it the Ten Commandments. It is the law in every nation around the world. You will get stoned for murdering people or mm-hmm. stealing. It's the same truth. So he goes to the future in that mountain comes back and finds his people in idolatry and perversion. It was because of the time zone that changed. There was mm. a different time up there. And he came back to where the people really was and had to teach them what he saw up there. Is there something a leader can do to prepare themselves for when they come back down? Yes. Don't take your people's pain personally. How do they not? That's a real thing. Easy. Okay. It's hard, but it's real. And I'm teaching, I want all my sons to learn this. Whenever you get mad at the progress, the process, or the lack of deliverance of your people, look at your hands. Hmm. And as long as there's no scar there, realize that the ultimate price was his. And this is not a reflection of what you did and or not. That's the problem. You have a pastoral yes, sir. expectation that people will be free. And over time, you have to learn the ultimate sacrifice was Calvary. Is that some kind of weird insecurity wound? Where they want to take sometimes, those and I think it's, but it's natural. Okay, you develop a, a parental affinity and a care for people's deliverance. But the challenge is, very often we believe and are more committed to people's process than they are. See, we have to use people's lives and actions and postures as the sign for how hard we should go. Mm. And we can't fight harder than you. I would always tell my sons, "Yo, when you get in the ring, I'll be there." But I'm not about to sit in here beating up on a devil you ain't even climbed in for. Oh. You lumberjacking in your own life. Right. (laughs) I wish they knew what lumberjacking was. They probably don't. It's a wrestling term, guys. (laughs) Uh, I think that the information that you provide is going to be in a textbook somewhere someday. Do you want to be in a pulpit the rest of your life? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. You do? I will preach for the rest of my life. I will not pastor Uh, for most of my life. So you've got a clock internally, I'm imagining. I do. If I'm honest, I don't know how God it is, but I have an ideal. 
And you're willing to stick to that? My goal? Uh-huh. I'm willing to change it if it's if not God. If God interrupts it. Yeah. What would you do if you weren't pastoring? I won't say too much, but what I, I will care for leaders for the rest of my life okay. in different ways. Um, even church leaders. Uh, my philosophy at this point in my life is I was called to the culture and the church is going to be blessed on my way there. Wow. So I think I'm going to have greater um, celebration. It makes sense now why church confusion doesn't bother you. True. They're a byproduct of your yes. And it's, it's school. <laughs> I believe it. Everybody gets frustrated with test time and exams and crams and finals and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. My intention is to bless the church, but she's just not my target audience. Uh, last thing, deliverance. Come out. How important is authentic deliverance versus counseling? Or are they both equally important? I think they should be used interchangeably. There are certain things that need to be talked out before it's cast out. And um, sometimes in talking it out, you break the authority of what needs to be cast out. Hmm. Um, so I absolutely believe in the power of deliverance. I believe it is real. Um, some people challenge or get um, uh, some people get challenged with how you could be such a gracist, which I am, um, and still believe in deliverance and curses and stuff. It's because I have New Testament examples of them. Yeah, Paul understood the grace of God, but still cast out a spirit of divination. So I think that there are two realities that exist. Yeah, I felt like personally. That uh, when I was introducing you, uh, Dr. Stevenson preached for me last night and it was insane. And I thought personally that your life to me uh, and to the people in that moment was a very Pauline example mm-hmm. of that moment with that girl with divination. Mm-hmm. Do you ever just get annoyed with dysfunction to the point where it's like, come here, this has to come out of you. We're not talking about this anymore. To whole years. Yes. <laughs> of my ministry is apostolic annoyance. I'm curious. Have you ever felt the need to cast anything out of me or Pastor AD or Pastor LeBryant? Very often. Do you do it through conversation? I don't know if you've ever laid your hands on us and screamed, come out. No, that's not true. Oh. (laughs) One of the three of you has a very consistent testimony about casting things out of. (laughs) The, The other routes is more conversational. It depends. Yeah. Uh, self-deliverance. Do you believe in it? I do. Okay. It's uh, If you believe that you can pray for personal healing, I think you can pray and, and implement personal deliverance. Now, I don't know how objective it always is. Sure. But I believe it's a possibility. I love it. Guys, you've been listening to another amazing podcast, A Game Changer. Dr. Stevenson, please tell us how we can follow you on social media. I am Dr. Matthew Stevenson at Instagram and MatthewStevensonWorldwide.com on my website. Uh, I've got something that I end with all of my guests. I'm going to give you four or five names and you take 10 seconds, 12 seconds. <laughs> I'm not the one. And tell me what you think. You ready? <laughs> Game change. All right, here we go. The Undertaker. The greatest of all times. Donald Trump. Do over. Barack Obama. A legendary. Malcolm X. My cultural icon, hero. Britney Spears. Nice concerts. <laughs> Denzel Washington. 
severely under-celebrated. Justin Bieber. Anointed. Carl Lentz. Anointed. Michael Todd. Uh, timely. Last one is Christabel Clack. Fine. <laughs> Guys, I love you. You listen to another great game-changing podcast. Make sure that you follow me, Brandon J. Clack, on all the social media platforms. We'll holler at you soon. Peace. Peace.